For the sake of my soul, I search for a goal, and I find none other than you, O Lord. You find satisfaction in my mitzvah action when you light in your Torah we see. Oh, grant me the awareness of your precious nearness. In your presence, O Lord, I long to dwell. Oh, help me in my start to make pure my heart. And all in the end will turn out well. Oh, Lord, so many years have gone by in great waste till of your wondrous sweetness you have granted me a taste. Teach me, please, and reach me and keep me in your grace until the day on which I may see your holy face. First, I want to say what a joy it is, Erev Yom Kippur, as a way to come together as a community of so many different synagogues and movements, but really to come together with a sense of Ahavat Yisrael, of the privilege of belonging. I see some people may be from outside our community as well. And I welcome you because that's also part of our gift of Yomim Noraim, that it's our teaching that not just Jews come before God, but God is creator, shepherds all peoples. And one of God's great shepherds is the man we're privileged to share this evening with, Rev Zalman. So indeed, it's a privilege to have an evening to prepare for Yom Kippur. And so I won't speak much more at this point to say to you, Rev Zalman, you're you know, one of my important teachers of bringing people together, what would you invite us to do, maybe by a song, to, to unite us before we begin? Uh, where is Reb Moshe with the guitar? Would you come here, please? All right. Thank you, Reb Moshe, for the Havdalah. And the new chidushim that you put into uh, the formula, because I would say from time to time, hamavdil vehamechaber ben kodesh lechol, and you have uh, made this part of the text, and that's just wonderful because we don't want to just separate. We also want to be able to connect, and just as the same way as there are portions of the body, the liver has to be separate from the lungs, and the kidneys have to be separate from the adrenals. But at the same time, they're part and parcel of it. So there has to be that which connects, and there is that which separates, and this is just fine as it is. So. Um, oh, how good, what do you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
that's just fine. Let's try. Oh, how good and oh, how pleasant it is for brothers and for sisters to dwell as one. many of the people here, this is a first opportunity to get to know you as a teacher, as a Rebbe, as Reb Zalman. So what I'd like to do with the limited time I have is to talk a little bit about where you come from, then about some of your teachings, and then to conclude with where you want us to be looking as we look forward. Mm -hmm. But when I spend time with you, see, see I mentioned this to you in person, so I'm going to share. I, I saw, the last time I saw Reb Zalman interviewed, was at Yakar, a wonderful synagogue in Jerusalem. And the rabbi there, Rabbi Mickey Rosen, is a wonderful singer. So he spent the night trading nigunim with Reb Zalman. That's my fantasy, to be able to do that. But I can't do that. So I look to you. And I look to you because when I look to you, I think of your, your grounding in song, your shira v'shtika, song and silence. What's the earliest prayer you remember learning? Mode ani lefanecha, melechai vekayam, shehechezarta binishvati bechemla, rava emunatecha. That's the waking up prayer. I give you thanks, God, for having given me another day. Great is your faithfulness. 
And at night it would be Hamalach Agoy Eloisi Mikoro, who Yevorichas Anorim, Vikobem Shmi Veshem Avosai, Vyidgulorov Bekerov. Oh, it's good night. So these are the kinds of things. Papa Oliver Shalom was a good davener. Once there was a situation, he was leading uh, a congregation in an outlying district in Vienna for the High Holy Days. They didn't have a chazan there, and he was glad to volunteer uh, for them. And when he finished the Amida prayer, I looked under the talis, you know, is there something about kids who always want to get under the blankie, you know? So I looked under the talis, and here I saw my dad had been crying. Warum weinst du, Papa? Why are you crying? I said to him. And he said to me, because I talk to God. And I said, does it hurt when you talk to God? You know, just, just as a child would. He says, no. So I say, why are you crying? He says, I'm so sad that I waited so long to talk to God, Aww. you know? Uh, you, you understand how this, this the kind of thing, when you see that there is a person who is, for whom God is a reality, for whom God is real, a presence, you know, that makes a space inside of you to take that seriously, that it's not just a word, it's much, much deeper than that. So I think that's where it started. <laughs> hmm. What do you remember from your bar mitzvah? Uh, not really very much. I couldn't, I couldn't produce the speech. I couldn't even produce the trope that I learned at that time because it wasn't, um, among, among uh, Galicianas, you didn't chant the bar mitzvah, you just recited it. But I had a teacher who was an Ashkenazi teacher, and a little bit I remember about how Sion Adovani Adonai, Vadonai Shechechoni. You know, it wasn't the same uh, melody that we use for, for, for Haftorah today. Uh, it was a, a German one, and I don't remember very much of what I said at that point. To me, the awakening didn't happen at that time so much at the Bar Mitzvah. Although, I want to say, um, about a year before the Bar Mitzvah, which happened to be in a place called Bad Veslau, it was a, a spa outside of Vienna. And there was a question about a chicken, whether it was kosher or not. So I was sent with a chicken to take the Tunaville trolley that was around there into the next town, Baden by Wien. And the chief rabbi of Baden by Wien was Rabbi Naftali Karlebach. And that's when I first met Shlomo and his brother. So we have been buddies for a long, long, long time, uh, you know. And that was, that was important. But when I go back to the place where in Vienna I felt something besides Papa, was one night, Vienna was in many ways the uh, Rochester, Minnesota for Central Europe. When people had a medical issue, they would come to Vienna, the doctors were well known there, you know. So a Rebbe had come from Poland to be uh, examined by doctors in Vienna and he stayed in a hotel and they needed a minion and so we came to help him out. That was already after Bar Mitzvah. And I didn't know the Davenant by heart. And there was only a, a small light there in, in that whole room. And everybody knew the Davenant by heart and was Davenant with great fervor. And I didn't know it by heart. But I felt drawn to get into the 
mood, the vibration of everybody davening. So I started to shuckle really hard, you know. And the places where I didn't know the words, I started to mumble, you know, to sort of scat, you know. <laughs> and the feeling that I had was that what was happening to me while I was scatting to God, like this, you know, but I meant it at that point. That this was stronger than the times when I looked into a sitter and I recited. For me, the waking up was something that happened later on. When we had to flee from Austria. What year? 1938, it was after the Kristallnacht in Vienna. And how old were you? 14. And um, at that point, we had to cross the border from Cologne in Germany to Belgium uh, without a visa. So you can imagine how difficult it was at that time. Finally, we got a smuggler to take us across the border. And I could go and uh, regale my children as I like to do about that journey that night and all the details that happened. But we came to Antwerp. And at that point, despite the fact that Papa was sort of an observant Jew and a Hasidic Jew, I had a feeling of such anger at Yiddishkeit, you know, that it really troubled me a lot and everything that was being said. But I knew enough because I'd been to a Hebrew high school, a gymnasium, and a yeshiva uh, in the afternoon. So that was part of my education. This business about leftist, Zionist, you know, and Agudas Yisroel. This is like Lubavitcher yeshiva, you know, and Hebrew Union College. I mean, th th this stuff has been there for, for a long time with me. And so I knew enough that on a Sunday, early in the summer, that people would be studying Pirkei Avot. So I knew that they would be studying that at Pirche Agudat Yisrael. And so I went there, and sure enough, they were studying that. And as soon as the teacher began to say, all of Israel has a part in the world to come, I placed myself near the door and started to say, pie in the sky is all a lie, you know? Nobody has ever come back from there, you know? Opiate of the masses, whatever I could pour out, <laughs> I did. The kids who were sitting around the table were ready to tear me apart. But the leader of that group who was teaching calmed them down, said, let him talk. And then he said to me, well, is there more? And I said, yeah, you promised us this thing that's going to be like a big rock candy mountain, you know, that the trees are going to grow garments and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's all baloney. So he says to me, would you like to hear from somebody who agrees with you? That was martial arts and education, okay? And uh, he sent up to the next floor where there was a Beit HaMidrash for a Gemara, a Talmud volume, Sanhedrin. And there in the back of that volume was Maimonides' commentary on the Mishnah. And he started to read where Maimonides says, I really need to take time out and to explain a little bit about the world to come because what is being written is nonsense. He says, how could somebody who is blind tell you about color? How is somebody who is a eunuch tell you about sex? How is somebody who is deaf tell you about music? Most people don't know when they talk about spirit what that's all about. Oh, was I happy. <laughs> you know? And so I, I came to scoff and to be angry and I stayed to hear the rest of it. And it was that chapter that, that really committed me to Judaism. 
because there is that point at which you want to break out from an infantile, uh, non-critical acceptance of what you have received from, you know, from the past. And you want to get to the place where you can say, what is it that's plausible to me? What is it that I can commit myself to? And this piece was that. Fortunately, the, the person who taught that, thank God he's still alive in Jerusalem in a home for the aged there. I just felt such warmth coming from him to me that I stuck to him. And pretty soon, he and his group had uh, moved away from Agudat Yisrael and we had our own little community. I'm talking about community again. And uh, he was a Chabadnik. He had been with uh, a teacher, and his friends had been with a teacher who was teaching him that what Reb Shnei Zalman, the founder of Chabad Hasidism, was teaching. And there I found such real joy. I, I was hungry for what they had to teach because it went to me, you know, sometimes you learn something and you say, my mind can't wrap itself around that, you know? But the more I heard of their teaching, the more I felt not only my mind, but my heart and my soul could wrap itself around those teachings. A little later on, we were bombed out in Antwerp, and we fled there, and we came to the middle of France, and we, I was interned in one camp after another. Finally, we got out, and we got to Marseille. One Shabbos afternoon, I went to the shul of the refugees, you know, and um, there was a man uh, with a, I was used to a Galiziana Yiddish, but this man spoke a little different, you know. That's how he was teaching. His name was Reb Schneer Zalman Schneerson. And I was so excited about how he was teaching because this reminded me of the teaching I had gotten in Antwerp. How old was he at that time? Uh, he must have been about 55, 56. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that one. It was the other one. Wait. <laughs> yeah. So I, I walked him home to the hotel after Shabbos, and I said, you know, we are a bunch of refugee kids here, and we haven't, and we are wasting so much time. If someone were around to teach us a little Gemore, we could make a yeshiva here, you know, sort of a yeshiva in exile. He found us a person who was an older bocher who had been studying way ahead. He was uh, close into his rabbinic studies, and he began to teach us. One day, this Reb Shneya Zalman says, Tu Bishvat is coming, and I can't be with you, I have to be in Vichy at that time, but I will send you a guest. And this guest came in and sat down at the table and said, Was what is it that you're studying? And we told him, and right away he began to talk to us. I was so impressed because he was talking from the beginning of the universe, there were 2,000 years that were the wild and woolly years, and then was Abraham. And then became 2,000 years that had to do with Torah. And it was intended at the end of these 2,000 years, by the year 4,000, we should have 2,000 years of Messiah time. But somehow, and he tied it all together with the first Mishnah in Ketubot. And he says, but we weren't worthy of that. So, maybe Messiah would come in the fifth millennium, and even that we weren't worthy of. And then he says, we are now in the sixth millennium. And oi, it's so late on Friday afternoon and Mashiach still isn't here, you know. 
I still didn't know who the man was, but I had fallen in love with him, you know? Because he was talking to me in such a way that I could see how history evolved, you know? How we move from an inkled uh, way of, of, of being in the world to something where Torah comes into our lives. And when Torah becomes realized, we live in a messianic period. And I could see the unfolding of history that way. Still didn't know who he was. A few weeks later, we arrived in New York. And a friend of mine asked me, uh, did you meet the Rebbe's son-in-law? So I said, who is he? He says, Rabbi Schneerson from Nizza, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. And it turns out that the guest who had come that time was the one who later on became the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Now, how old was he at that time? He must have been at that time about close to 40. And the first speaker, that was his father? No. That was a cousin. A cousin. It's yeah. The same name. A, a member of, of that illustrious family. family. But yeah. it was so exciting to me that the teaching that he had given. So I wanted to go and see his father-in-law, who was then the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak. And so I claimed that I had regards from his son-in-law. <laughs> so they let me in, and it was in a few minutes the Rebbe had settled me and my brother and my father and with jobs and, and my sisters and it was all good. Then he says, so what did he say? Uh, and I repeated the teaching that he gave. A couple of times he went like this. <laughs> like, it wasn't quite what he must have said, but it's okay. He didn't correct me, okay? Uh, a couple of months later on, this Rebbe arrived in New York and he sees me greeting him and he says, Rue Convalescent, to Bishvat, you were sitting over here. Do you remember what I said? <laughs> and I repeated it, and he corrected me. <laughs> and it was wonderful. So I felt that these people, his father-in-law, when I first saw him, you know, I started to cry, not like my papa would say, you know, it doesn't hurt to see the Rebbe, you know, so why am I crying? I don't know, the feeling is, later on Hasidim would say, when you meet your profound teacher, and you know that he knows you, and you can learn from him. It is like a spark meeting the flame, you know, and, and that's, that's how it is. What, so, made, what made him a profound teacher for you? And this is the Rebbe's father-in-law. Who was the Rebbe? <laughs> you gotta hear some stories. Uh, I had known about him yet in Vienna, because the story was around that in 1928, the Yefsexia, which was the Jewish section of the um, uh, secret police in Russia, the GPU, had arrested him for godly activity. That's what they called it, and this was like being a traitor to uh, to the government. So. When they were interrogating him, one guy pushes a gun at his ribs and says, this persuader has made many men change his mind. And the story goes that the Rebbe answered him, only a person who has many gods to serve and only one world to serve them in can be impressed by your persuader. But I, who have only one god to serve and many worlds to serve him in, will not be persuaded by your persuader. Now, when you hear something like this, you know, then you say, where does he get the strength? Where does he get that, that awareness? Where does he get that knowledge? And, you know, when you see somebody who has that, 
then there is an attraction that you feel. I know this is good for me. I know I want more of that, you know? And so that, that's, that's how it happened. You ask me, <laughs> and you know what? All these things are afterthoughts, you know? The real attraction that I felt is something nonverbal, you know? It's very intuitive, it's very soul stuff. What are, oh, and I'm keeping one eye on the clock, because okay. I would enjoy a, going to yeah. late at night, <laughs> just uh, hearing of the, these stories. But what are three gifts that your Chabad education gave you that remain with you? A reality map, that's the first one, you know? Whenever you want to think about anything in the universe, we need to have some kind of a map as to how to integrate what is above, what is below, how do the priorities fit into it, how do we understand the universe, how do we understand God, how do we understand angel, spirituality, soul, and all that kind of stuff. And Chabad gave me a reality map that still serves me to this day. And I want to say at the same time as we had the conversation before, it needs updating. But I haven't found anywhere else so sophisticated a reality map as I found there. Now, let me say a little bit more. Most of the people who are fundamentalist Christians have a very narrow uh, reality map. A low ceiling, you know. The understanding is that they take things in the Bible literally. And if you were to say, what about, what do you know about heaven? What do you know about soul? What do you know about all these other things? They haven't got much to say. But if you were to go and ask, for instance, some people who are deeply into Roman Catholic spirituality, then they will tell you about Meister Eckhart, about Thomas Aquinas, and so on and so forth. In other words, there is sophistication there. If you were to see, see the average Hindu genuflecting in a temple to statues, and so on, so you might say, oh, come on, what's this all about? But then you talk to someone who can tell you about the Vedanta, about Brahman, Atman, Vishnu, Shiva, you know, uh, Parvati, about Shakti, uh, you know, all, the, all these, these great things. And you have a sense that they have a reality map in which you, on which you can project a lot, a lot of things that are not only in the visible universe here, but way beyond that. And so I found this in Chabad, and it remained with me now. And out of the template that I have, out of Chabad, I'm able to also look into the neighboring territory and see, aha, when they are talking about X, Y, and Z on that level, they're talking about chakras, all right? Heart chakra, the fourth chakra, Tiferet on the tree of life. Do you understand? I had a way in which I could integrate things, and that helped me a great deal even in the ecumenical understanding. So this stayed with me, that's number one. Number two, um, Davenology. Uh, I like to use this word because it makes you trip and say, what, what's that? You realize that when you say ology, it means there is a science to that. And Davenin usually is being seen by people as reciting, mere reciting, you know? So I take a book and I recite, and it doesn't do anything for me. Why? Because what you find in a siddur, in the prayer book, is freeze-dried feeling. You know? It's like if you say, could I have some soup? And I give you some freeze-dried soup. It has to be put into water. It has to be, you know, it has to, some, you've got to do something with it. And most people have never gotten, along with a sitter, a way in which they should, you know, uh, how to use it, what to do with it so that the stuff comes alive. These were real experiences. King David gets caught by the Philistines. He knows his life may, may come to an end. They're going to kill him. 
He can't even be sure that he can run back, you know, because King Saul is after him. He doesn't know what to do. All of a sudden it occurs to him he should play like a Michiganer. And he acts like really crazy, you know. And the king of the Philistines says, Ah, do I, do I need more crazy people? And throws the bum out, okay? So it's very much like, um, uh, don't, like Br'er Rabbit, don't throw me into the briar patch, you know? So he throws him out, and finally, whew, he comes back to his friends. And he says, any grub around? <laughs> you know? And they give him something to eat in the camp out there. And then comes the telltale burp. Ah, they know he's, he's, he's replete. He has eaten something good. And somebody hands him the lyre, the guitar. <laughs> you know? I so said, you, if you've seen Rav Shlomo taking, taking the guitar, and now he's ready to go. So he says, I will bless Adonai at all times. Always his help is with me. <laughs> you know, every day will I bless him. So he goes, A, you're adorable. B, you're beautiful. And he goes according to the whole olive base and makes up a song. But the song comes out of his experience. And when we recite it and rattle it off, you know what I'm saying? Nothing much is happening. So when I, what I learned in, in Chabad was that you have to daven be'arichut. You have to expand your davening. You have to think in the middle of davening, you say, the soul of every living being blesses your name. So you don't run further. Every living being, you run through a whole... Everything that breathes, nishmat, kol chai, you know, and, 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 and you get to see on the inner side, all the way from guppies to whales, you know, and you see stars and sun, the moon, and then you say, oi, and if I could, I surely would, you know, if I had wings, I would fly to you, if I could run like swift as a deer, and these things, when you somatize them, in other words, you feel them almost in your body, there's a waking up that is very, very strong, very powerful. And when you get into places in Davenin, there are some launching places. So when you get to Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, and then you don't go further for a while, and you get to the sense that how everything is all one. Make me one with everything, you know? And you get to the sense that there isn't two, there's only one. And you get a feeling not there is God is one and I'm the other, but I too am dissolved in that oneness of God. It's a remarkable thing. So the davening was great. We had a prayer coach, a mashpia, you know, a football coach, a prayer coach. <laughs> One day I'm going like this and questioning, oh, you, 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 the davening, making these heavy faces like, like I want and God says no, okay? <laughs> so he goes and gives me a zetz in the side and, and he says, did you already try with a smile? You know, and it was so wonderful because while it still hurt on my side at the bank that he gave me, I start to smile. And when I start to smile in the davenin, you know, how wonderful it was. So davenin, I, I still appreciate davenin from Chabad, and especially the melodies. Let me sing one of them, okay? I put some words to it. Because when I, usually when I sing these melodies, people sort of hear them as like a uh, Russian, you know, uh, melancholy melodies, and they are Russian melancholy <laughs> melodies. But when Hasidim sing them, they want to go with them someplace. So here goes one. For the sake of my soul, I search for a goal, 
and I find none other than you, O Lord. You find satisfaction in my mitzvah action when you light in your Torah we see. Oh, grant me the awareness of your precious nearness. In your presence, O Lord, I long to dwell. Oh, help me in my start to make pure my heart. And all in the end will turn out well. Oh, Lord, so many years have gone by in great waste till of your wondrous sweetness you have granted me a taste. Teach me, please, and reach me and keep me in your grace until the day on which I may see your holy face. I see, that's the kind of singing we would do at the Fabrengen in Lubavitch, you know. So the, the, the singing itself was a prayer. It was very powerful. So that was, Davinology was number two. Okay. <laughs> number three, when a Hasid visits the Rebbe, or even before he gets to visit the Rebbe in a meeting that's called the Yechidut, a one-on-one -on -one thing, a oneing. I described that in a book with my, that was my doctoral dissertation on the Yechidut. The book is published under the title Spiritual Intimacy because this is what happens when you come to your Rebbe and you talk about what's going on in your soul. And there is the Mashpia, that prayer coach I mentioned to you before. And they start, it was like a Gestalt session at times that we, when we would be in a Fabrengen. He would begin to talk and you would feel that you're in the hot seat at that point, you know. And you had to experience some things about your own, if you will, blind spots, moral blind spots. So it was a very important experience. And then you would come to the Rebbe for counseling about that. And the Rebbe would counsel you. And you would have a sense that there is nobody in the world who so well understands what's going on in the depth of your soul as he does, you know. So in comparison to that, the average pastoral counseling is child's play, you know. It is the highest level of spiritual direction that I've experienced. A sophistication that is not only psychological, but it is psychic and spiritual. And it's amazing because we come to a Rebbe to ask him the question, how do I best fulfill the purpose of my life in this body? And that's a very, very important thing. So these are the three things I would mention. Very nice. Yeah. You and your childhood friend, Reb Shlomo, were among the first, if not the first, two shlichim 
from Lubavitch to college campuses. So that's right, that was 1950? 1950, just before the Rebbe passed on. And that, I mean, in terms of a realm now where we're so used to seeing Chabadniks and college campuses and around, so it really is remarkable that, again, Rebbe Zalman and Rebbe Shlomo were the first two sent off. Because, again, our time is limited, so yeah. we'll move forward. Tell us about your departure from Chabad, your graduation from Chabad. Uh, what led you to make you, transition? You say that very good, because, <laughs> because people always, you know, want to say, what was it that got, you, that got you angry, you know, that you made a break, you know? They always want to get the dirt on such a situation. Uh, there was, uh, and if you have ever read anything by Alan Watts, Alan Watts uh, was asked a question, what did you find wrong with the Anglican Church? Because he was a, a priest in the Anglican Church that you quit. And he says, I graduated. And I like that, you know, because there are some people who are fixated at one level or another level, and they never graduate. And that means, as very often you can find that if you talk to a good Chabadnik, most of the time you'll ask him a question, then he'll say, the Rebbe says, the Rebbe says, the Rebbe says. And sometimes I want to kick him and say, and what do you say? And then they'll say, but the Rebbe says, you know? <laughs> And so you see what I'm saying? There is a point when if you have a teacher who has taught you well, that you can say, and now you're on your own. And I feel there was a time when I was thrown out of the nest and it was a wonderful thing too. Because then you have to see how much of it do you own in your own soul and so on. So if people want to know why, I can't give you more than this to say that the box was too narrow. Well, let me go back and just give you a picture of this, okay? I was very clear, if you read the Tanya and some other books, it comes out that we have it and nobody else has it really. In fact, we even would say, among Jews, Hasidim have it and the Misnagdim don't have it. And among the Hasidim, we would say, Chabadnikas have it and the rest of them don't have it, you know? And it was very, very clear at that point to me that when Mashiach will come, He'll first announce himself at 770 Eastern Parkway, you know. <laughs> uh, you, you understand that? I mean, I mean this, this, was, this is the picture that you get. And you call such a notion triumphalism. And the Christians say the same Misa, you know. Uh, Jesus will come, there'll be the second coming, and he'll say, you Jews were wrong all along, and the Christians were right, you know, and they'll triumph. Muslims will say, the last imam is going to come, and he'll say that all of you were wrong, but only we were right. The last avatar is going to come, you know, and, and, he will, and he will say that you uh, Hindus were right all along and all the others were wrong. So you see that every religion had built in something in which it said it is über alles, you know, it is the one that, that's, that, that will triumph in the end. And what happened to me was that I began to see, looking over the fence, that other people in other traditions we're facing the same problems that we were facing in our prayer life, you know. The first downfall came for me when I was still in New Haven, Connecticut, a very card-carrying Chabadnik. I wanted to be a better teacher in the Lubavitcher Yeshiva, so I went to the library to read Norman Gazelle. He was, the, at that point, the, the education person. And uh, I find in a, on a table of new acquisitions two books. One was Difficulties in Mental Prayer by Father Eugene Boylan. And the other one was the World Bible, the Little World Bible. I picked them both up, checked them out, took them home. Oi, Gewalt, the Goyim know about mental prayer. 
And then I read, and he's talking about the troubles that people have, about thoughts that come in from outside of prayer that disturb. Oi, he's talking about Machshavizoris, the same thing that we are dealing with. You understand? I began to see that on the other side of the fence, there were sincere people, all who also wanted to serve God, and they also are dealing with the same issues that we are dealing with, you know. And that was one of them. The other one, when I read the Little World Bible and I read a story uh, of Ramakrishna. Oi, uh, Gewalt, they have a Rebbe too. That's how it came to me, you know. I didn't know from gurus, nothing, you know. But here I see a story, a story. One day, a holy man is walking on the field and there's some kids playing and there's a cobra making its way. It's just about to pounce on the children. And the holy man says to the cobra, don't do such a thing. Don't you know, tatvam azi, even thou art that. You know, and, he, and the cobra sort of gets so enlightened, you know. <laughs> okay. The next day he comes back and he finds the kids are beating up on the cobra. And he says to the cobra, why do you let them? He says, Tatvamazi, even thou art that, you know. He says, listen, I only told you not to bite. I never told you not to hiss. <laughs> do you understand? I could take that same story and tell it about him so-and-so, you know. Because they're dealing with the same thing. Remember the wonderful story about um, Peretz tells about the Rebbe who disappears when Slichus time is and everybody meets in the synagogue, and then they say, where is the Rebbe? And they say, he's in heaven. And so there's a Litvak, he comes from Missouri, he wants to check it out, and he tiptoes after the Rebbe. That's right. There's a, and he goes and, and he finds him uh, putting on dress of a Polish peasant, and uh, goes and picks up wood, and takes the wood, and goes into a shack in the back of town, and the guy's tip, tiptoeing after him. Knocks on the door and a voice, a weak voice comes out, who is there? And he says, Yvonne, uh, the Polak. And he says, um, uh, what do you want, Yvonne? I've got some wood to sell to you. I haven't got any money, so you'll pay me some other time, he says. I can't even get up and make a fire. I'll come and make up a fire. So he goes in, starts making up the fire, and while he's making up the fire, he recites the stuff that people are reciting in shul. Whereupon... When the Litvak gets back to the shul and somebody says, where is the Rebbe? And they say he's in heaven. He says, if not higher. <laughs> okay. Now, the fifth patriarch of Zen goes around collecting to be able to publish the sutras. And in order to print those sutras, you have to carve them out of wood blocks in mirror writing of Chinese. It's a big, big job, you know. And... He collects money for that, and he's got the money together to get him printed, and there's a flood. So he spends the money on the victims of the flood. He went collecting again, gets the money together, and there's a famine, and he spends the money on the victims of the famine. And the third time around, he gets the money together and prints the sutras. But those who know say that the first two editions were greater. Now, do you understand? When I see the story here, and I see the story here, and I see it deals with the same, with the same issue, then it meant for me that I have to get out of the box and say it's not only what's happening in the box, it's beyond that. Where I'd like to go next, I'm going to skip over, which is I want to talk a little bit about your work and your creation, your vision with Jewish Renewal. 
But as you were talking and telling the Zen story and how it's related to the Hasidic story, one of the things you're best known for is your visits to the uh, Far East with the Dalai Lama. Many of us read The Jew and the Lotus by Roger Kamenetz. What is one thing you learned in the, your meetings with the Dalai Lama and one thing you hope he might have learned from you? If you read the book, there was a discussion going on at the time, what bracha do you make over a Dalai Lama? <laughs> because if you look in the Siddur, you'll find in the Siddur that when you meet a sage, you, a Jewish sage, you say this blessing. You meet a king, you say that blessing. And if you meet a non-Jewish sage, you say this blessing. So what bracha should you say over a Dalai Lama? Okay? My sense was that what I've read and heard about him, you know, it was very, very impressive. So even before we went to see him, I had a sense of going to see a Rebbe there. When we had our conversation, again, something happened. We started talking about angels and, and spiritual forces and so on and so forth. And it became clear to me that it wasn't just Zalman and Gatsio Tenzel, you know, who was talking. It was the angel of Tibet and the angel of Judaism were having a conversation, the Sarshal Yisrael, you know that there was something happening on a transpersonal level that was very important. And I said to the people, when we are going there, don't just go to sell, don't forget to buy. And it was very important because each one of us bought something there. Um, <laughs> there were such wonderful moments there. Uh, they were telling me, how do you present ideas to the Tibetans? And so I made a whole chart uh, in order to present that uh, according to that thing. At one point he turns back and behind him sit the elders and has a little conversation then turns back to say, I have to check with them, they're orthodox. <laughs> his, his humor was so, was so wonderful. But it was very clear that what came to me was more than anything else was how does someone who is responsible for the continuity of a lineage, deal with bringing it forth into this present and making sure it would continue in the future. And I, I think that this was a very important learning for me too, that yes, they are orthodox and you have to check with them and at the same time you have to explain to them why you have to move forward. And that was, I think, something for me. There were other things, but not everything is zucht menois, you know. Then, I was trying to tell not so much him, but some of the people who were with him, that if you want to learn, you see this whole business of dialogue started yet in the 60s. I had come into New York, and Judah Stamper, Oliver Shalom, uh, took me out to um, Highland Park in New Jersey, where they already had a lamasery in the 60s. And I was talking with the lama there, and I was saying to him, you know, you people are at this point in the diaspora, even in the late 50s when, when that thing happened in, in Tibet, I sent a telegram to Ben-Gurion that he should offer him uh, a sanctuary in Israel. Nothing much happened about that. But the feeling that I had was how important it was to be able to start that dialogue because we know how to survive in the diaspora and they may not know that. And so this culminated then in our visit there. And I pointed out to them that as long as you were located in Tibet and you had your great lamasery in Lhasa and in Drepung and all those places, you could rely that your clergy was doing all the stuff that needed to be done. But if you're going to be in a uh, diaspora, living in some city, 
and you won't have a lamasery nearby. So what are you going to do? You have to have people who will be pujaris, that's to say, who will be able to do the kiddush and the havdolah, as it were, in the household and, and of their own. And then I talked to them about the Seder, because the Passover Seder is such a remarkable intergenerational thing to pass on uh, a culture. And when we say L'Shana Habab Yerushalayim, and how wonderful it would be next year in Lhasa, you know, if they would finish their Seder that way. So I think they got something from us, and we learned a lot from them, and some things about meditation and deep work in um, what they call thought forms. But that's a whole other thing, and I can't go into it right now. Now to focus briefly on Jewish renewal. What was the need for Jewish renewal? And what do you hope will be the legacy of the work you've done with Jewish renewal? Somebody says to me, define Jewish renewal. I want to say, ask in 150 years from now. It's a work in progress. It can't be, it's at this point not, you, you, you can't, it hasn't set yet, you know. It's growing. But let me uh, tell you a mashal that I like a lot, an analog. There's a tree. And there's the bark of the tree, and there's the wood of the tree. And between the wood of the tree and the bark of the tree is a growing edge. You know what I'm talking about? It's that place in the tree where the juice goes up from the roots and where the stuff from the trees comes down. And that's each year a new ring is being created as that ring that is the growing edge becomes wood and dies as it were. And a new ring comes up and, and develops it, you see? I believe that without, if you didn't have the wood that somehow seems almost dead in the center, the tree wouldn't have stability. Any wind could knock it over. But if the tree wouldn't have a growing edge, Steinbeck wrote a story about somebody who killed the tree by cutting around, cutting off that growing edge from the tree so the juice couldn't go up and kill the tree in this way. I think that's what, on the one hand, people say renewal is new, and on the other hand, I would say renewal has always been happening. If you go to Muir Woods and you look at the sequoia that's been cut there, and they show you this is the ring there when the Magna Carta was written. I mean, you could, you know, you see the history in that tree. If you could look at Judaism, you would be able to see the same kind of a thing. This is the ring when we left Spain. This is the ring when the Baal Shem Tov was, you know. Some of them were more juicy, some of them were less. Then came the Holocaust, and it looked like part of the tree's growing edge was cut off. And there is still a little bit left. But if you were to ask people who don't understand the or organic dynamics of how a tree grows, they would say, we don't need a new ring. The old ring is good enough for us, you know. But if we don't have a new ring, the tree dies. I think this analog is all I want to say right now. So then I'm going to ask you to do one thing with your permission to transition to questions from the group. Good. And, but one moment, one thing to ask the transition, and that is to help wake us a renewal-type song or something mm. that you would share from that spirit. Most of the time, Reb Nachman of Braslav, Moshe, come here. <laughs> uh, Reb Nachman of Braslav says, you have to take from the song of the land. And it turns out that most of the time we have a feeling that if it isn't in a minor key and feels Slavic, it isn't Jewish. You know what I'm saying? But there is... No, 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 no. So, a C, my, a C major. Good. So here I was at Oberlin College uh, in one of those 
uh, sorties as a shaliach, you know. And Saturday night we are sitting down and we are talking about Jewish music and they're saying, make up a something. So I say, okay, let's see, give me a chord in a major key. Okay, give me a chord in a major key. Mm, if I forget you, Jerusalem, let me forget my right hand. If I forget you, Jerusalem, let me forget my right hand. How shall we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? How shall we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? Im eshkachech Yerushalayim Tishkach yemini, tishkach yemini Im eshkachech Yerushalayim Tishkach yemini Eich nashir et shir Hashem Al admat necha Eich nashir et shir Hashem Al admat necha When I think of uh, Debbie Friedman and how she was what she was doing. Her Kaddish and Blues is such a wonderful piece, you know? And I have a feeling we are coming into our own here in this country right now. And when people think is renewal only that's with a capital R, you know, only that which has to do with this group, it's not true. It's going, it's going through and through, even among Orthodox people. There is stuff of renewalish stuff that's happening for them because they realize that they couldn't stay in business if they didn't do that kind of renewing. Okay. Okay. So we're going to go for about 15, 20, about 20 minutes from the kahal, from the group, and then I'm going to take five to ten minutes of eat it. So everyone. Right. Go. One of the great teachings of Tibetan Buddhism is the Bardo Tudel, is the book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and part of the training is how to be able to make a conscious transition from life in the body to life beyond death, and to seek for a better incarnation next time around and how to stay conscious through that. And for a long time, if you hear stories about Yennevelt, you know, the other world, and the books and stuff like that, we had a whole bunch, a great lore of that. But then when the 1800s came around and rationalism took over and they poo-pooed the whole business, you know, if you had put your book out in 1930, they would have said, aye, you know, uh, that's not Jewish, you know. But it turns out, that we have a lot of mismaterial. One of my students, whose name is Simcha Raphael, got his doctorate writing a book called Jewish Teachings of the Afterlife. And I can't replicate this all very, very quick, but the notion of that certainly was uh, in such a way that uh, souls uh, come back when they have to fix something in this world, or even if they have to fix something of their own incarnation, or to help other people. And I could tell you stories a whole night about stuff like that. But it turns out to be that this was, uh, much of it was in folklore, and some of it was written in very esoteric books, and certainly not translated until we got 
uh, some material that you provided for us and that Simcha Raphael did. So that's the best I can give you a short answer. So as you conclude our wonderful evening together, Reb Zalman, what's your charge and your bracha for us, Erev uh, Yom Kippur? Uh, <laughs> American Jews <coughs> have by and large <coughs> handled Friday night. What I mean by that, if you go back in the 30s and 40s, you know, Jewish centers would have Friday night services. And those were the ways in which we got things together. Friday night was temple night. I remember those words that people used to say. And Shabbos morning was when you went to the dentist. <laughs> uh, and now it's begun to happen that there's more and more Shabbos morning. And when I begin to see how wonderful Shabbos morning has become, that people are drawn uh, to Davin. And there are those moments when people are not just thinking about who am I, how do I present myself, am I okay with other people, you know, in such a way, but really are into the daven and the words, the melody takes over, the ark is being opened and people feel, oh wow, yeah? That's a good part. I want to say, apropos of this, when you get honored to come up to the ark and open up the ark, most people go like this. <laughs> they don't know what to do, they stand like dummies. What you should do is turn away from the people, and there's the Torah, and you can say a few things that you hardly ever get a chance, you know, to talk about who you are, what your problems are, what you want help of God. That's, that's why you get set up there. It's not because you gave a fat donation to the shul. Do you understand what I'm saying? Use that time at the ark that's important, but that's not what I want to say. I want to say that Sudash Lishit, the Shabbos afternoon, that's an important time to spend together. I feel that when you meet at that point, and this really have to be friendship groups to do that, again, safe and sacred space, in which you can all talk about, first of all, there has to be an okay to talk about soul stuff, you know? Some people, if I were to ask you, so tell me about your prayer life, you say, I beg your pardon, you know, as if I were to ask you about your income. But if you cannot talk to other people about soul issues and that they have to be buried, you know, you'll never get out of that pedestrian consciousness. So, how do you do that? You get together, you sing those songs, and people say, not, uh, I understand what the Sedra says this week, but this is what the Sedra said to me this week, you know? Hazinu ha-shamayim v'adabeira. I put my ears to heaven so I could hear what's being spoken to me. V'tish ma'aretz fi, And I want to be able to hear on earth how I'm to do this. Do you understand what I'm saying? When I go with concern that I have and we can sit together and share that concern, that's the first thing that I want to say about uh, what you might do next. Try, you know, and you don't always have to ask the rabbi to be there. It, it was so nice we both had a nap this afternoon, <laughs> you know. Uh, he, he's working hard as it is, you know. But if you get together in homes and have sudash lishit, and sit and sing those songs. Remember the times that you were in youth groups and so on and so forth. Tell some of the stories, prepare some of the stories. Those, that I, those stories I've been telling you. Read a parrot's tale to each other. Sing a song. Then sit in silence for a while and see what comes up, you know? I once did this with my shul. I had a lot of trouble. I didn't warn him beforehand. Uh, so one Friday night I said, no sidurim. Huh? That was, an, well, it was the, the late Friday night service for the people who 
couldn't afford to go to the conservative temple, but were really reformed Jews who joined the Orthodox one. <laughs> <clears throat> so, uh, we, so we had, this was in New Bedford, Massachusetts. So <clears throat> we had the service there, and I said no Sidurim that time. So we sing Shalom Aleichem, and then I go up and I start saying to the people, you know, in the time way, way back, there were some people in our religion who would sit for an hour in silence, and then they would pray for an hour and then sit for another hour in silence. So I'm not asking you to sit for three hours here with me, but let's take 20 minutes and just sit in silence. And if anything comes up in your heart that you want to share during the time, like the Quakers do, you know, because I have attended some Quaker services and was impressed by them, uh, then get up and say something in one sentence. Don't give long speeches, but say something. There was a person who had just been a refugee from Germany who still had a strong German accent. After five, ten minutes of silence, he got up and said, Are we not all like a camera obscura? hermetically sealed by our organs and senses. If only we were to allow a pinhole there, not only would the light come in, but the whole beautiful picture of the beyond would be reflected within. And he sat down. <laughs> it was so wonderful, it was so beautiful, do you understand? Because he by making the silence, he allowed something to well up in him, and he was replicating something that was in the Talmud. There it was, there his statement, right? Then I said to them, okay, now for the next 20 minutes, we're going to do the following. You hardly ever get a chance to pray in shul for what you really need. So I'm going to ask you uh, now, not to say it out loud, because nobody's going to say out loud what they really need, <laughs> you know. But you pray quietly for what you really need. And when you come to the end of your prayer, you say, and let us say amen. And we are going to pray for your intention. God, whatever Charlie wants, give it to him. You know? And five minutes is quiet. And then somebody says, and let us say amen, let us say amen, let us say amen. It was wonderful. Everybody is, is into that after a while. Then I said, let's have another 20 minutes. And at this time, we get up as families and we count our blessings out loud. You know, a testimonial saying, dear God, I thank you. I have a good mishpocha. I thank you for my health. You know, do you ever get a chance to do that this way? You know, you're saying all the good, you're saying all these things. But when do you say, God, I really like it, what, what was happening to me in my life, you know, to give thanks for that. I appreciate that. So people got up and did that. And in the end, the president got up and said even, ah, thank you, God, we have such a good rabbi. <laughs> Great. On Thursday, I get a special delivery letter. We have 432 sidurim in the synagogue, and they're meant to be used by the board. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to tell you something. Every once in a while, not every week, but every once in a while, and maybe during the week, you meet together and you try out some of those things and see what it feels like, you know? And maybe more or less you can incorporate them in your service, too. A little quiet silence, you know? At the af even five minutes after you're finished with the Amida, just to sit down and not to hang up the telephone and listen to what God may respond to your prayer, how wonderful that would be. So, I want to do something for you right now. I'm a Kohen, you know? So I'm going to do this thing. But I'm going to do it in such a way 
that I want you to close your eyes and ask for the blessing that you need, and I'm going to pray that you should get that blessing, okay? May you be blessed with health of body and soul, with consolation for grief, with the opening of the heart, with renewal and refreshing of the relationships in your life, with joy in the work that you do, and with hope that things will be better. Amen. Thank you to Ari Katz and CSP for bringing us together. A thank you to you, Reb Zalman. And may you, Reb Zalman, continue to be blessed with health. May you continue to be blessed with health a great twinkle, and the pursuit of holiness. Amen. Lichvod chem dat levavi, Eliyahu hanavi, Lichvod chem dat hanshama, Miriam hanivia, Lichvod chem dat levavi, Eliyahu hanavi, Somebody find my jumbak back there. <laughs> So let's draw up the waters in joy from the wellsprings of deliverance that comes from Yah, the breath of life, who showers blessings upon our people. As Jews have had light and honor and joy and honor, so may we and all the world as we lift salvation's cup on high and call upon the name of Adonai Lichvot Hamdat Levavi Eliyahu Hanavi Lichvot Hamdat Anshama Miriam Hanavi Oh, it died. Mm -hmm. Just got
ברוך אתה, ברוך אתה אדוני אלוהינו מלך העולם בורא פרי הגפן, בורא פרי הגפן לכבודכם דת לבבי אליהו Spices, spices. 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 Miriam Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm going to be so embarrassed, but this is asked. When we teach about Hamavdil, Havdalah, we teach the separation. We teach about separation, which is a very difficult and challenging thing, right? And the uh, Kabbalists know that that's about Gevura. You know, I am, you cannot be a toad, you are a flower, as my Rebbe would teach. But at the same time, we need to know that Shabbat and the time of ending Shabbat is about the harmonizing of these differences. And so I've always felt uncomfortable saying, Hamavdil ben Kodesh, Hamavdil ben Yisrael Amin, between us and other peoples. And so it came out like this. We bless you now, O Holy One, living spirit of the world, who distinguishes between and harmonizes all the things that seem to us to be in separation. Lichvod limdat levavi Eliyahu hanavi Lichvod hemdat hanshama Miriam hanivia Like light and dark and women and men the Dweek and the Shabbat, the Jews and other folks, we know the day will come when all will be as one. The light of the moon will be like the sun. Lichvod hemdat levavi Eliyahu hanavi Lichvod hemdat hansha If I go to the other... And not just say it, but really know it. Maybe some instructions they should turn to each other. Shabuato, <laughs> 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 
take their seats. Shavuot. Hugs and kisses and Shavuot. A good year, a year of peace. May gladness reign and joy increase. A good year. A year of peace, may gladness reign and joy increase.